Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, uh, the podcast of the Peerless Review. I'm excited to have uh, my guest on today, who has been in the news quite a bit re recently. Um, my guest is Dr. Elizabeth Weiss, Professor of Anthropology at San Jose State University. Uh, her area of expertise is physical anthropology, where she does skeletal analyses to understand bone biology. Uh, she is the author of dozens of peer-reviewed publications and top-tier journals in her field. Um, and she's author of a number of books, including the most recent one, uh, 2020's Repatriation and Erasing the Past, uh, which, which was sort of the origins of some of the more recent controversies uh, she's been embroiled in. Um, that book criticizes repatriation laws that require excavated human remains, skeletal remains, to be returned to ancestral homelands. Um, uh, and uh, Dr. Weiss's argument is that museums and laboratories play a critical role in preserving those materials and um, really preserving the, the record of human heritage. Um, Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so I ask everybody this. Tell us how you got into anthropology. Why anthropology? When anthropology? Um, well, I don't I didn't actually declare um, as a major anthropology until I believe my second year as an undergraduate. But one of the reasons why I love anthropology and what attracted me even very very young on, before I even knew the word anthropology, was anatomy. And I loved anatomy toys like, you know, uh, like the visible woman where you put all the pieces together, uh, skeletal anatomy. Um, and so initially when I went into the university system, I thought I would be go pre-med. But I realized that what my real interest and love was, was understanding the the anatomy of the past to help reconstruct what past lives were like. So not only, uh, you know, looking at skeletal anatomy to understand, for example, bone biology, which I do a lot of, but also to understand what people were doing in the past, what they died of in the past. And um, it's just a fascinating field. Um, I. I still am in awe every time I open up a box of human remains. Um, and it's just um, my love of um, understanding that past through looking at bones has not diminished at all. Interesting. And so you found a way to kind of fuse an anatomical interest that's more related to kind of biology with this uh, sort of historical archaeological emphasis. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, Probably many of our viewers are are aware of the incident that happened in early October, which um, uh, made me really want to have you on. Um, what happened, to recount it briefly, is that uh, you were doing some research in um, your curation room at the university, uh, and you uh, took a picture, or someone took a picture of you holding a uh, skull of an indigenous person from, I don't know when, many centuries ago. Uh, and you were smiling. And, and I think that the quote, the caption that you had on the image was so happy to be back with some old friends, uh, referring to happy to be back in the laboratory, um, doing the work that you do uh, with these artifacts that are a part of our collective um, 
human heritage. The response to that was pretty sharp and, and pretty quick. Uh, and um, obviously people thought uh, that this was um, in rather uh, poor taste, some of the woke people. Um, you responded uh, to your credit by, um, in, in my opinion, that the best way to respond to woke insanity is to uh, treat them dismissively. And you said that this is a woke activist mob without any legitimate arguments. And um, I, I, I would like you to fill us in on this most recent um, uh, kerfuffle, I guess. And then we'll talk a little bit about the ways that maybe your book sort of uh, teed this up. Okay, so basically, um, it it revolves around two tweets. I would say okay. the first one was actually a month, about a month earlier, and it was on my op-ed from the Mercury News, where I write about. Sorry, I'm gonna say um, it was the the op-ed on the Mercury News was maybe a month later. Okay, within a month. Um, and um, basically, the op-ed was criticizing the new California NAGPRA laws, Cal NAGPRA. And that got a huge amount of negative attention on Twitter and other social media sites, um, calling me everything from a ghoul to a grave, grave digging digger and to the, you know, um, racist, anti-indigenous, and so forth. The photo was actually put up earlier, um, but then they backtracked and looked at that photo in relation to mm. the, to the um, op-ed. I believe that they basically um, thought, oh, we'll get, we have to find more dirt, kind of, so right? they went digging. And they went digging. Um, a little and, excavation of their own. Yes. And so... Um, <laughs> This photo was taken in the curation facility. Um, I was reboxing um, some materials, um, just keeping up curation, you know, of the collection. And I had been gone from the collection for, I think, 17 months because of COVID. Mm -hmm. I mean, our school shut down pretty much. And um, so I was really happy to be back. <laughs> and I, you know, I was, looking um, through and doing my work and I saw the skull and I thought, wow, you know, how great it is to be back. I took the photo um, and I, I basically um, posted it as a, as a sincere statement. Um, people, oh my goodness, you know, how can you call these old friends? And we use the term friends in a variety of ways. I don't think anybody who really looks at that statement could think that I'm doing it uh, disrespectfully um, if you're being um, unbiased, right? If you're taking a neutral point. You know, we have friends of the library, <laughs> friends of the forest, right? Um, so I think that the term friends is always considered a positive. And it's, I didn't think of any uh, that that there was anything wrong with using that term. And I still don't think there's anything wrong with using the term. I think anybody who reads something malicious into that is, is incorrect. <laughs> um, and um, so then they were like, oh, well, she's not holding gloves. Well, there's a lot of debate about when to, 
where she's not wearing gloves, excuse me, where, when and where to wear gloves in bioarchaeology. And bioarchaeology is the study of skeletal remains from the archaeological record. You know, if I wasn't, you know, looking at a crime scene in forensics, of course you would wear gloves. But these skeletal remains, which were initially excavated in the 1960s, have been handled without gloves for decades decades even before I had ever seen them, right? So it's not like, um, you know, I'm ruining some data. Um, actually, the National Park Service's recommendation um, for handling skeletal remains is to not wear gloves hmm. in most cases because you're more likely to drop things with gloves on. Huh. So in a sense, this was a, you know, false straw man argument about, oh, she, I'm not handling the remains correctly. My provost incorrectly then pointed out that this, you know, how bad it was that I wasn't wearing gloves, which is it's just a, a complete um, non-issue. What is your provost um, discipline before he entered administration? I not I think anthropology. I think it's geography, if I'm not wrong. Mm. So, um, but so. That and then, um, and I responded to him. I actually reached out to him privately first, um, and um, he he basically did not want to meet with me. <laughs> um, but I always feel like the best attitude is to just respond honestly and try to be sincere and civil. Um, and so that was my tactic. I did re write a response to that. Um, what ended up happening was. As a result of these, uh, of this reaction to the photo, um, is that the university basically locked me out of the curation facility. Wow. I've never seen um, university facilities office work so fast to change the locks. It's like, <laughs> you know, they changed the locks. Well, I have and, I have the quotes from your provost here and states that were made to the university community. He said that the image, quote, evoked shock and disgust and, uh, quote, that it does not align with the school's academic values. Um, he did, I, as far as I could tell, he didn't really elaborate what those values are. I think it's kind of uh, um, sweet that universities still have values, um, but uh yeah, it sounds like uh, he was he was definitely not interested in, in having a dialogue. And ironically, prior to this, um, the university would oftentimes ask me for promotional materials with me with bones. <laughs> so they would sometimes send out university photographers for me to take pictures with skeletal remains. So this was a common thing that they that was done over the years. So it's not like, oh, she's never done this before. Um, and I'll get, get to that kind of um, argument in a little bit. But basically, um, one of the things is that, so, you know, they locked me out of the, the curation facility. Did they just like, change the code on it for you? Yeah, or? they changed the locks. Yeah, they literally rekeyed it. <laughs> and they basically then um, had a new set of protocols that would, that were, put in place to handle the remains or to get access to the remains. And it it read like a checklist of everything I hate. <laughs> um, and I think my favorite one, I'm being sarcastic here, but my favorite one was 
that menstruating personnel were not allowed to handle remains. What? And this is <laughs> one thing is the fact that they didn't even use the term woman is, you right, know, right, right, right. personnel. Um, but the other thing is, so is this, this are is, the other women in your department going to uh, uh, self-report on that or or how's that going to work? I suspect so. So there is a NAGPRA coordinator and a tribal liaison and they are both females. And so when this happened, you know, I, I, you know, my lawyers and I, we looked at this and I said, this is a Title IX violation. <laughs> you it know, and it's just ridiculous. Incidentally, um, that strikes me as inherently discriminatory. It's exactly yeah. the kind of thing that Title IX violations get filed for all the time. And so we actually uh, had that stricken off. We contacted the, when we made our filing, we mentioned that. And, um, and it was taken off. But I mean, it was only taken off because I mentioned it. And it's this kind of anti, you know, although you can argue um, that the university has to follow the law when it comes to repatriation laws. And I have never broken repatriation laws. I, I am against repatriation, but I do my job. Um, so I've never like prevented Native Americans from filing for them. I've helped um, the NAGPRA coordinator repatriate uh, some skeletons. So I've never broken the law. I don't think that that means that you can't say that you're against it. I mean, that's a different story. Um, so can we back up a second here and uh -huh. explain to sort of people who might not be in the know like me exactly what do these new laws in California say? What are the obligations of, of researchers as it relates to these? Okay, so I'll start with the federal one and then say how California like modified it because that's probably the easiest way to understand it. Okay. So the federal law is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, NAGPRA. And it basically states that skeletal remains, human remains and sacred objects, um, like, like funerary, uh, associated funerary objects, grave goods um, that are in the hands or are being curated by federally funded organizations are, um, are susceptible to being repatriated or given back to the tribes that are culturally affiliated with it, with the remains, with the collections, and that the affiliation can be determined with um, biology, um, like DNA, mm -hmm. um, with skeletal studies like craniometry, right, study of skulls. What of about crania. just informal genealogy, like if yeah, lore and or... also. Yeah, and it also takes into play. It, it also takes into account the um, Native American histories and their their oral tradition. Okay. Um, I would say that they take that too much into account, um, but it's supposed to be a balance. It's supposed to be a compromise, and so um, it's not supposed to deal with anything that's not sacred or not human remains. Um, and it's not supposed to deal with um, things that, you know, like, you know, animal remains that are not buried with as grave goods, things like, there's a lot of things that, at sites that are not sacred, right? The definition of sacred 
is basically that it would be required in the traditional Indian religion for their uh, religious practices, um, which is a little tricky since they didn't write them down. <laughs> and but most of those religious practices from centuries ago are probably forgotten now. Right. Completely. And, and they weren't written down. So, you know, um, so what we basically, Cal took it one step further, and I say Cal Nagpra, California's Nagpra, is like Nagpra on steroids, because basically what they said is if there's any ambiguity um, or disagreement, that the Native Americans' um, voice or decision supersedes the scientific one. So if we have a collection of skeletal remains, and I say, well, they're not, they Sacred. don't belong to this tribe. And the Native Americans of that tribe says, oh, yes, they do, because our oral history. And even if I would say, well, you know, actually, the DNA shows that it doesn't, the tribe story go, uh, supersedes the DNA. Right. So. Um, so basically. Um, the that's where that's a law. Right. Um, but the law does not count, you know, like things that are like records that are already done, like collected, um, data that is already collected, photographs that are already taken and so forth. And so in a sense, um, part of the problem is that the university um, has decided that because the Native Americans have said that they want everything and they, they do plan to burn all photos, all x-rays, all uh -huh. records, um, and I would say that this is this is um, a aberration of the university's duty to just go along with it because that's not what the law says. And it's actually interesting that um, everything I've asked for turns out to be sacred. So <laughs> initially, the Native American tribes had asked, had that they wanted to repatriate the remains. And I would argue that these remains, which are thousands of years old, the oldest ones being 3,500, are not affiliated with the tribes who, who are asking for them. They were initially um, assigned as unaffiliated, but we don't know which tribe they came from. And actually it's multiple, it, I've looked at the collection um, and it's a specific collection that we house. Um, and I've looked at their um, crania and um, basically saw that there are changes in that collection because it, it spans 2,000 years. It's all pre-contact and it spans 2,000 years. So but there are probably look... different tribes in that space yeah, at the same time? Yeah, invasions, right? Mm. Um, and, and there's lots of evidence of violence. There's like obsidian flakes in, in the vertebrae and so forth. So I would argue that it's not affiliated to the modern tribe. But regardless of whether that argument holds or not, I would still say that planning on burning the x-rays is not in the law, you know? So I, I think that that's, you know, um, that's the nuance. So um, let but, me ask you just a little more because I'm I'm curious. So, so basically, does it work like if a Native American tribe 
makes the request, right? They have to make the request, I would presume. Yes. And then the sort of analysis of the claim is done. And then let's say that they decide, all right, this is a legitimate claim. These remains need to be, or objects need to be repatriated. Uh, how are those objects and remains transferred to the tribe and who within the tribe is qualified to take possession of these things? Do you know? Um, well, usually there's like an elder or a chief, right? Um, or a committee of them um, that will take them and there'll be like a, a you know, group that are uh, the repatriation committee or, okay. or so. Um, and are the remains reburied at that point? They're re reburied, yes. They're basically reburied. And one of the issues sometimes is, you know, that remains are not reburied for decades because they don't have the land that they want to rebury them on ah. um, and so, so they end up in a room very much like the one that they're currently sitting in but with less of the precautionary measures that the university's put in place or they may even sit in the same room but nobody can access them ah. so i could work at the university for another 20 years for example and it could be that those remains are never repatriated because they the native americans of the bay area want land of the Bay Area to repatriate them. And they it might be that they never get repatriated in my time, hmm. um, but no one can research them, which wow. is- and So do they seal the, the, the containers so that they cannot be opened at that point? They, no, they just lock the door. Oh, okay. Right? <laughs> That'll work. Lock... Um... So, but um, when I, First, you know, when I first was going through this, I asked for other materials that would not be covered in NACPRA uh, or CalNACPRA, like x-rays. Um, my first re real research was done on CT scans and my PhD dissertation was done with x-rays. So this is one of my areas of expertise is um, you know, radiography and looking at the bones with x-rays. And basically um, I was told that um, these, were too, these were sacred um, as well. Um, Radiological uh, images. How they can be sacred, I don't understand considering that the definition of sacred is that it has to be something that they would have needed in their traditional Indian religion to practice whatever ritual they were going to practice. So they had no x-rays. So how could this be sacred? Right. <laughs> you know? So it sounds um, like that the game is, is to just sort of, and, and I don't suppose that every Native American tribe is doing this, but some who are motivated by activism are just trying to essentially confiscate the entire data record. Of... That's what I think. And and I think that sometimes it's personal. <laughs> um, and I do think that in my case, it is personal. I think that they had, had I not requested it, they wouldn't have, I'm not, I'm not even sure they would have known that the x-rays were there. Um, had I, I then requested the animal remains that were not with, not associated with um, burials. So like, obviously, some animal remains are associated with burials. I I understand that and I appreciate that complexity, um, but I asked for the ones that were basically, um, you know, the the trash heap <laughs> remains, and they won't give those to me either. The they trash claim heaps those are, are sacred. Trash heaps are now sacred. Okay. Um, so it 
so I do think that um, that this is a moving goalposts issue. Um, and I think that it can be moving goalposts in a general sense in the field. For example, um, now the Society for American Archaeology, um, they started off saying that they would not display any um, books with photos of skeletal remains at their conference. And then they, um, they've now changed it that um, all of their journals don't have photos of remains anymore. You, you may be allowed to submit a, a sketch, a, a sketch <laughs> of it. <laughs> uh, okay. I mean, it's um, crazy, you know? Right. So I do think that, that this kind of issue um, is, it's, it can be both personal, like in my case, but it's not just personal. It's also a, a field-wide problem. I want to talk about that in just a moment, but we should give listeners um, an idea of um, maybe what the initial impetus was for this. You've done work for some time um, against repatriation and just sort of analyzing the questions involved there. But your most recent book uh, with, I think your co-author's name is Springer, right? Yes, James um, Springer. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this book, uh, as I understand it, uh, makes a more direct critique of the law and the the sort of philosophical and scientific underpinnings of the law such as they may be um so this was i i think the thing that got you on the radar of the kind of woke activists um there was an open letter after the publication of your book i think that was signed by some i don't know 800 uh, students and um experts in anthropology um and that's no small feat to put that together, I think. Uh, um, and after that, it seems to me as an outside observer that that was really when you kind of became a target. Is that right? That's correct. Um, so the book is uh, Repatriation and Erasing the Past. It's um, University of Florida Press. Um, and actually, I think, it, you know, I've been writing about repatriation issues as long as I've been an anthropologist. Um, so I, my first article and was like in 2001 or so. Um, so it, my views have not been secret. <laughs> um, even though my university sometimes acts like, oh, they had no idea that I held these views. Um, I've, I have held the same views for my entire career and I've never made it a secret. Um, I think why this was different from my other writings was that it upset the uh, social justice warriors of the of the um, of anthropology that I got it into an academic press. Mm. I think that that's what upset them that it was actually, you know, it's it's difficult to get a book in the academic press. It goes it undergoes peer review, you know, and like nobody none of the reviewers said, oh, well, this is a racist book or this is, you know, anti-Indigenous. And it's not like these reviewers like, like, oh, great, check off, you know, yeah, fine. Hard. They had lots of comments and there were lots of um, things that, you know, we, we did to get this through, but they were not, it was, that wasn't the issue about, um, it wasn't like, oh, it's racist or it's, 
politically unpalatable or it was more like, you know, organization and things and meshing Jim, my co-author Jim and I's style and so forth. That those were the issues. Um and <clears throat> So I think it really upset them that it got into an academic press. I think that that's, that's what really upset them. This is and, a way that they, they try to ensure that it won't happen again is by, yes. by throwing the, the fit, right? Um, right. And it asserts this claim that the, the woke uh, faction of any discipline has uh, this veto power to, to say what will and will not be allowed uh, within uh, the scope of the research that gets done in any given field. It's really disturbing. And one of the things they wanted is they wanted the book to be banned. They they don't use that term, but they basically wanted the publisher to withdraw the book, which is the equivalent of banning the book. And they wanted the publisher to make sure that this book was not in any libraries or open source. Hmm. So this is the equivalent of banning a book. You yeah. know? A real banning, not taking it out, of, it out of a kid's library or something. Right. Like that. But, and um, yeah. it's funny because they, you know, in the letter, they're like, they argue that it shouldn't be available with open source or, um, or in libraries. And open source, for those who don't know it, is like a way to have it for free, right? Yeah. Um, and... Um, Nevertheless, a lot of the people who are signing this letter were asking their friends and colleagues on social media, does anybody have a free copy of this book that I could borrow? Just in so, case anybody who wants to ban it wanted to read it first. Yeah. <laughs> I can guarantee that a lot of the people who signed that open letter, and I don't know the count now, but I think it's close to a thousand. Um, well, look, can, if half of them read it, your book did really well. I mean, That's what I was going to say. It would be like a bestseller right. in academia if half of them read it. I don't think they did. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that nobody read it of them. Some most people of them did. did read it. Most of them did. Most of them did it. Mm. And um, I think one of the interesting things is that um, there was also a whole series of um, book reviews, negative book reviews on it. And like one of the, some of these book reviews were written by like five people. What book review by committee? You know, so I think this is another issue. But um, and one of them started with like a um, uh, saying that um, you know, my my choice of cover, or, you know, why this was such a bad choice of cover. I didn't even choose the cover, and actually, we had different ideas of covers, but we were greatly limited by the fact that you can't include a skull or a photo of a bone yeah. on the cover for advertising on my so, 2020 book i had zero say in the cover they sent yeah. me they sent me an image and said what do you think of this and i said exactly. what if we did it in black and they said eh we're gonna do it like this right <laughs> yeah um and this person who wrote this review must have known that because they are an academic themselves so um, I just thought that that was very strange to spend like a, you know, someone, a part of a book review on the cover. There used to be an old saying, I guess it's gone out of <laughs> vogue now, that you can't judge a book by its cover. Right. Um. <laughs> um, so that's, so, you know, the book definitely, definitely, you know, put a, me on the radar, so to speak. It's, it's actually, um, 
It's an interesting book from a few perspectives. One is that it's, I have a co-author. <laughs> um, and Jim Springer, you know, he's, one thing is, he's probably the, the smartest person I know. Um, and I'm honored that, you know, I get to work with him, write with things with him. He's also a retired attorney and he has a, a PhD in anthropology. So it's, you know, he was an excellent co-author um, and he could write about the legal aspects of repatriation laws in a way that I would not be able to. It just would be beyond my ability. And so it is also a really good review of those repatriation laws, a very thorough review, but it can include, so it's basically broken into three sections. The first section is like um, what we can learn from skeletal remains. And the second, and which is, I wrote most of that part. Then the second section is the legal section. And then the third section is bringing it together and why we oppose this. And so in general, Sorry, give, go ahead. Give me the argument, like in brief, from the anthropological rather than the legal perspective. Like, uh, what would I mean? I think I can anticipate what the arguments would be, but I'd like for you to spell them out because sure. you'll probably be more eloquent than I will in that regard. So, one of the things is that we um, we recognize the the vast amount of knowledge that skeletal remains hold, and that this knowledge is not specific for knowledge for just one, any one tribe, but rather is for all of humans. That history belongs and prehistory belongs to all of humans. So that's one aspect. But not only, you know, for just intellectually curious, but the, the benefit that studying skeletal remains has on forensic anthropology. Many people don't know that forensic anthropologists are often trained initially as bioarchaeologists because of um, that's where they get their first experience um, looking at skeletal remains and that understanding that you cannot learn about skeletal remains from just models and perfect bones that you need to see them not well you know not pristine but literally you know what breaks and what what uh, Something that's what a quarter of a femur, yeah. What a quarter of a femur looks like, as opposed to just a whole femur, right? So that um, if if it wasn't for anthropology, we wouldn't have forensic, you know, bioarchaeology. We wouldn't have well-trained forensic anthropologists who do a service in helping to solve crimes. So there's right? a whole criminological angle here that I hadn't considered. That's interesting. Yeah. The other aspect is that. Anth um, physical anthropology has played a, a large role in um, medicine and helping us understand what aspects of today's diseases and, and um, ailments are new and what are um, ancient or have been in past populations, how those change. And that helps us understand perhaps treatment patterns, perhaps um, um, ways to prevent um, certain as certain types of um, bone diseases. For example, I, much of my research has been on arthritis. And the patterns of arthritis are very different in prehistoric populations than in modern populations. Hmm. And part of this understanding this helps us look at, okay, well, 
what we know is that some of the stuff that we're doing now causes arthritis in the ways that it didn't in the past. For example, our, our weight gain. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, but it's not just pure weight because the um, many individuals who are very overweight also have non-weight bearing arthritis, arthritis and non-weight bearing joints like hand arthritis. Hmm. So those kinds of comparisons. Um, and I've published in, um, in, of course, physical anthropology journals and archaeology journals, but also in medical journals to show the links between the past and the present. So I think that as exciting as it, as it is to understand, you know, what uh, Kennewick Man's last meal was, it's not just an intellectual argument, it's also practical knowledge. Um, the, the other thing is, um, so beyond just the knowledge, is that repatriation is really an ideology. And so one of the things we point out in repatriation and, the, and erasing the past is that it's not just about literally returning bones to tribes who think that they are related to those bones, um, but that it's become an ideology and it's postmodern ideology that argues that the tale that is being told is only valid when it's being told by Native Americans. And therefore we're losing the information or our ability to look at the information objectively in an objective manner. And our argument is that the skeletons are neutral. And that if you take uh, that position, that whoever is the most uh, accurate in retelling um, the, the past is irrelevant, their, their identity is irrelevant. So if I come up with, uh, if I look at, you know, the Germanic tribe of bog bodies and I say, well, you know, I can tell you that they died from uh, violence because they were against witches and I'm wrong just because my mother's German doesn't mean I'm right. Um, and then if a Native American looks at that bog body and says, actually, no, it looks like they were, you know, um, uh, they died accidentally from falling in the bog and they're right, then that's the, it doesn't matter that that person's not related to the bog bodies. And what matters is, is the truth. And our, and we may never find the absolute truth, but we always have to strive for that truth. And that truth is not determined by the color of your skin or who you're related to. And so, so we address that in the book as well. Let me ask you this. I mean, cause this is just to a, you know an outsider of your field like it seems to me one of the big arguments would be and i agree with you if these remains prehistorical remains are the collective property of human civilization right then there's there's something to be said that 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 sort of the latest sort of western euro-american technologies have the best capacity to honor those those objects by preserving them and is that part of the argument here is that, you know, there that perhaps experts um, trained in the scientific method have a better ability to preserve these objects. And so in that sense, honor and revere the history that they represent. Um, yeah, I would say that that's partially true, that basically the fact that universities and museums have 
you know, curation facilities that help preserve the remains and have uh, the techniques to study the remains is in part, you know, um, is in part the, the argument. Now, nobody is saying that, you know, oh, well, if a Native American has studied anthropology, we don't want him in, right. in the curation facility. Of course not. Our point is it's, it's, um, it's a non-issue in a sense, right. or it's, it's not, a, it has no bearing on the truth. It's not a matter so, of who, it's a matter of how. It's a, yeah, it's, a ma- it's not a matter of who, it's a matter of how. A good comparison, for example, would be medicine, right? So, you know, we have Western medicine, um, and yet anybody can practice it. Right. <laughs> you know? So, and, um, you know, I think that that's a good comparison. And so since this, since this book uh, sort of, um, you've sort of faced a sequence of trials, I think right now you have a lawsuit against your university. Um, tell us a little bit about um, this case and, and what you hope to gain from it. So um, when this book came out, um, my university initially were seemed supportive, but uh, they, they turned, uh, you know, they turned turned around. Um, and um, one of the things is that um, as the um, open letter against the book and was occurring, some other stuff bubbled ahead, right? One of those things that arose was that a um, we had a um, panel, a webinar on what makes a good Native American Studies Center um, at my university, and um, I decided to attend. Um, and I was shocked at what I was hearing. Um, basically, um, the speakers were the who were um, Native American um, were saying things like um, there should be no um, office staff that are not Native American in Native American Study Center. Um, and um, they said, you know, not even Hispanic because um, if a Hispanic person mistakes a Native American person for Hispanic, that can be, that's an insult. And if they, you know, so, you know, we wouldn't want, for example, a Mexican to say, oh, um, speak Spanish to a, a Cherokee, <laughs> you know. And, um, and so what I said was, um, I said, why would that be an insult unless you're against Hispanics? I mean, people might look at me and say, oh, are you Irish? <laughs> And I, no, I don't have any Irish in me. Why would I wouldn't find that insulting, unless I hated the Irish? Then you know, right. but I wouldn't, right? Because you know, there's if you truly think that all people are equal, you it wouldn't be an insult. And so I brought that up, and and they were very upset about it. Um, the speakers, the provost was there, and he did not look happy. Um, <laughs> And people's, and then the other thing they were saying was that only Native Americans should teach Native American studies courses. They were like, we understand that this might not be possible, but only Native Americans should teach them. 
And um, and I, I said, you know, why? I mean, in a sense, should only British people teach Shakespeare? And so, and I think I gave that exact argument. And I was called a racist, and I was called a Karen, and I, you know, <laughs> you know the, all the all the usual um, right. you know, insults. And I just said, you know, I just don't see. I just don't see those arguments as valid arguments, you know. Um, and I didn't, you know, I was respectful. I did not, you know, this wasn't a chat. So it was like, I wasn't like being, you know, like cussing or being right. vulgar or being, I was just literally asking that, those questions. Um, I was then told, uh, uh, my chair wanted to talk to me and he basically told me not to go to events like that anymore. He, he acted like he was sympathetic, but he's like, you know, you could really get your junior colleagues into trouble. How could I get my junior colleagues into trouble by going to these things? I don't know. But um, that's part, part was part of it. Then the other aspect was right around the same time, one of my colleagues um, sent an email out um, to the listserv saying, um, he encouraged everyone, like graduate students, to use the database site Black Authors. And I responded to that email. Um, that, and I, I responded very politely. Said, you know, although I I believe this is well intentioned, I also think that students should cite the author who has done the best work on the issues that they're looking at. And that a person's race, ethnicity, or skin color has no actual validity uh, bearing on the validity of the statements of the work. Um, and so that was called out as racist. Um, and so these other two, these two little things arose. What happened was my chair decided that I that they would change the listserv from being an open listserv to closing it up so that only statements, only submissions that are okayed by him um, and one other faculty member um, would be posted. Um, another thing um, is that uh, the chair decided to have an anti-racism speaker series to counteract the negative effects of my book. Um, and so when he did that, I said, well, you know, I'd like to have a, a speaker series on cancel culture. And um, let me guess, there wasn't a, spe a speaker series on cancel culture. He basically said, oh, we have no money. And I said, um, well, <laughs> how about say we have no cancel culture? <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, and then I said, well, how about next semester? And he said, he basically said no. And then what he did was he said, well, you know, um, oh, by the way, I found these rules for putting on a guest speaker or for hosting a guest speaker that we should follow. And obviously, and he held a special um, meeting about it. And, and I was like, you didn't just find those rules. You were looking for an excuse not to support a speaker series from my perspective. And um, so that was another example. And it was interesting. He had on his anti-racism speaker series, he had a list of four people, but only two showed up 
to uh, to cancel their appearances and to to did their talk. And the first talk was outrageous, and it was like um, everything is um, uh, uh, everything is white supremacy, everything is white racism. And, I, and at that time, there were a lot of attacks on Asians by um, blacks. And basically, uh, I asked the question, how is that white supremacy? And he basically said, well, it's basically our fault that that the blacks feel that way. You right? should have known better. <laughs> if you spent more time in a humanities department, you would know where that that would go. I, I sincerely did not know that statement was coming. Oh, yeah. Um, so... Um, but the second speaker, you know, although I didn't agree with everything he said, I thought he made some good points. One point that he made, which I thought was very good, was that sometimes people who are of um, different ethnic groups and minority groups are pushed in to study only that what is related to them. And so a black student may not want to study African archaeology. Maybe they're interested in the Vikings. And why shouldn't they be, you know? And so I thought that was actually a very good point. I go into these things with an open mind. Um, and, you know, and I thought one speaker was bad and I thought one speaker was good. I, why wouldn't other people feel the same way about going to a talk that a series that I give, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then so, the other thing. Go ahead. Um, so the other thing was that um, then you know, there was, uh, we had a whole thing about, should I get access to the Carthage collection, the collection that I'm studying right now, which is a Tunisian collection. And um, they wanted, the chair wanted to first have a policy about photography before he grants me access. And we literally had a meeting where, you know, we in the, the whole department, the whole faculty, um, met about whether I could take photos of skeletal remains. Uh, I'm the only physical anthropologist there. You know, so we have two archeologists who study like, you know, artifacts like stones and pottery and so forth, right? And then we have cultural anthropologists. And so they're trying to argue that they have a right to decide whether I get to take photographs. So really they're making a decision on your sub area of expertise. And I fought back like heck on this one. And um, basically um, just, you know, I would not give it up. I would, I, you know, and I, I kind of won that battle because they just, you know, basically shelved it, but that threat is still looming. And now we have two new colleagues. I don't know if it's, that's going to become another issue. Um, but what I think is interesting is um, I'm, the, one of the cultural anthropologists, one of my colleagues, um, she she said, "Well, you know, do you have permission to take to take these photos from the people?" And she knew, of course, they were skeletal. And I said, "Well, of course not. <laughs> they are dead." She's like, "Well, did they write anything about it?" And I was like, "This was in sixth century A.D. They didn't have cameras." <laughs> I mean, like the absurdity of it. The well, absurdity that, of it. This brings me to the the, the more recent tempest of teapot in your field, where um, some activist scholars are saying that uh, researchers should not identify the sex of human remains, 
um, because we don't know how those historical people identified in terms of the rich spectrum that is gender and sexual identity. Um, yeah. Um, so one of the things is that um, there's a movement to to force anthropologists studying, looking at skeletal remains to not identify race and sex. Uh, forensic anthropologists do this and they do it quite well. Um, and it's an important aspect of identifying crime victims, but it bubbles into archeology span because basically I think the end outcome is that they don't want this done on forensics, but they know that they have to, you know, get it for archeology span as well. You know, otherwise us archeologists or bioarchaeologists will teach the forensic anthropologists how to do this and then, you know, they'll continue doing it. So, but one of the arguments is that this, and you'll, you'll see this in certain uh, literature, that the, that the male-female divide, binary sex, is, is a white colonialist system put on to the, to past remains and, and you know, and that basically, groups. yeah, and therefore we shouldn't determine whether these skeletal remains were um, male or female, because we don't know. Oh, and wow. I mean, one of the things is, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. One thing is, if, if there were so many non-binary individuals in the past, um, our human race would not have lasted <laughs> because um, they wouldn't be, you know, it, it's not like they would have IVF to deal with the, the non-pregnancies that, you know. But the other thing is that many ethnographic studies that have many in many cultures where you're looking at uh, cases of non-binary, like in like in East um, Indian, so India, um, they, the anthropologists act like, oh, these are signs that it's an it's accepted practice to be to have all these non-binary things in different cultures, but not in the Western culture. But if you look, actually look at where these, um, where non-binary or where all other genders um, exist in different cultures. Um, you see that those people are treated very badly usually, which I'm obviously not for, but it does show that it, they do not consider it normal, you know? Um, it's an anomaly. It's an anomaly. The other aspect of it is that if you're looking at a skeleton, you can look at it and see whether it's male or female. And we, by bone it, length and density. Bone and length, the pelvis. The pelvis has a slew of traits that are obviously um, different in males and females because of childbearing. Um, you know, the skull has many different aspects. So you can tell if it's a male or female. You can be wrong sometimes, obviously, you know. <laughs> but, but we are very good at identifying sex on the skeleton. And... When they've done recent studies on skeletal remains of recent people who've actually undergone sex changes, and they find that you can still tell what their biology was. So if a, if a male now 
wants to be a female and they go through the feminization surgery, like the shaving of the Adam's apple. You can see that those changes were made artificially and that the true biology is still there. So that doesn't change it. Um, the other aspect of this is that um, we're just putting our ideology on people of the past where it really doesn't belong. In There's a sense, no that's evidence. a violation in itself, right? Yeah. That's that's uh, you know for the the people these people pretend to be revering the past, and in fact they're they're rewriting it in their own image. Rewriting it, and it's actually quite ironic that it's that these this kind of woke ideology is very anti-women. So, for example, um, if you find a skeleton with a um, an arrowhead and it turns out to be a female skeleton, the answer is like, oh no, that was a, a trans male because females aren't buried with arrowheads. They, really? Well, isn't, isn't the likely conclusion that hunting was done by both sexes? <laughs> really? There's, there's people who are experts in anthropology who would make that argument? Like, I know that we're, yeah. we're wow. Okay. And there are lots of there are lots of um, artifacts that actually are sex neutral, like sewing needles. Sure. And I I think sewing is a good I, good example because sewing we sometimes associate with females, right, with women, like seamstresses. But there are tailors. Right? And it's also like that's one of the sort of oldest arts that are practiced by yeah by not, men and women alike. So it's not like they come to the conclusion, well, oh, the, the sexual division of labor is less rigid than we thought it was, which is the conclusion that I would come to. Um, but rather, oh, well, that couldn't have been a female then, and which I just think is, is anti-female. So um, I've talked to other anthropologists and, and um, they have said that anthropology is one of the very rapidly wokeifying fields and yeah. it sounds like what you're saying is bearing that out is there any way to to restore it or do you see these trends as ascendant that it, it you know a, a lot of people you talk to about these things will say well it's just a fad this will die out and everything will go back to normal but that's not my sense of it in the university my sense of it is that it's it's uh consolidating power um, and that it's going to be more pronounced. What say you? I I sincerely hope that um, it will at least retreat a little bit, <laughs> ebb a little bit. I think that um, I'm I'm not sure that it will. I think that um, it is our job as academics, as professors, to try to get to the truth the best we can. It is also our job not to um, be scared to speak about things that are politically incorrect. Um, I think that perhaps with a little luck, um, people uh, who are speaking out against it will gain a little traction and that it might, what might happen is it might be more division so, for example, some places that have gone very much woke, 
um, early on, like Berkeley, the physical anthropologists left the cultural anthropologists. Um, but I was surprised when I gave a talk at the Society for American Archaeology how incredibly woke they were. Um, and I would not have thought so. Um, and obviously, I knew that they were not, you know, that they were very liberal and so forth, but I didn't think that they would be, you know, uh, as bad as the cultural anthropologists in that sense, right? Um, I do think um, that physical anthropology, especially those studying bones, like osteopathology, myself, you've been avoiding saying it the whole time. <laughs> like you're, you're good. Um, you're recognizing that most people wouldn't know what that is. Uh, I think that we are in a unique, uh, uniquely bad position because if the, all the remains are reburied, what is left? You know, um, and I, you know, I get people sending me messages and on uh, social media, media saying, "Oh, just scan them, um, print them out in 3D, and then return the bones." Well, a couple things is that. We are not there yet with this, these 3D scanners. Um, in a sense, they are the details, and you have to think we're not only looking at the surface; we're looking at inside the bone and so forth. So we're There's not like there yet. Hardness, you know. Yeah, we're not. We're not even close to there yet, right? I don't know. I'm not saying we won't get there, but we're not there yet. But the other thing is, I have no faith in this. Um, in this road of scanning and scanning and repatriating. And uh, one thing is, I think that once all the skeletal remains are repatriated, they will come after the casts because that's what they've been doing. Right. If they, they want remember, the x-rays, they're going to they want, want the, the scans. Yeah. yeah. So I do not think that that is the solution. I think the solution is to try to show people the value of the remains themselves and to to continue to speak up it might not work but it might and it's it's definitely worth a shot well we don't really have any alternative we have to take the shot yeah um so we've talked for a long time i've enjoyed it but we got to wrap it up well i i wonder you got some good news this week your university had initially uh moved for the courts to throw out uh, your suit you've now found that uh, the court has decided the suit will go forward so congratulations on that Thank you. what is the what are the next steps I mean do you know when the hearing will be yet do you know like you know could, could you describe for us the most favorable outcome in your mind or is, is it too early for that I think it's too early for that okay I can um and I don't I don't know all the dates but I think the I think um, what I can say is that uh, regardless of the outcome, um, I'm, I'm very thankful to Pacific Legal Foundation for helping me. Um, I also think that, you know, regardless of the outcome, um, my actions have brought attention to this very important topic. And it's not just about skeletal remains, it's about free speech and academic freedom. Um, so even if you completely disagree with me on the the bone aspect, I should still be allowed to talk about it. And I should not be punished for that. Um, the, the other thing is, um, 
I think that I am, I, I feel like I'm always prepared for the worst and I hope for the best. So regardless of what happens, I think I did the right thing. I think you did the right thing too. And I also think I would say to anybody who's listening, who's in a similar situation, I know there's a lot of academics that even a legal loss brings exposure to public exposure to the processes and, and the forces that are at work on campus now. And further, oftentimes in discovery, a lot of things come to light that the universities really didn't want to be public knowledge. Um, Absolutely. And so it, it's even a legal loss does good work in advancing the cause here. Yes. Um, Elizabeth, I wish you the very best in, in, you. in your in your fight. And I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was fun. Maybe we'll have a follow-up. Have a good day.